Trouble so hard, ooh, Lord, man. Trouble so hard, don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, man. Trouble so hard, ooh, Lord, man. Trouble so hard. Don't well, good morning, know. good morning, and welcome to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5. I'm the temp, I'm Christine Smaller, and I've got the great honor of sitting in this chair while Sherry DeNovo is away on a well-deserved sabbatical. Sherry will be back next week, and I know she has an amazing show and a great lineup for March for you. But today, today we have a great show ahead for you. Uh, we have a wonderful guest. We have the Reverend Dr. Jessica Hetherington who is so many wonderful things. Uh, we're so lucky to be able to get to know her a little bit today. Jessica is an eco-theologian, as well as an ordained minister. She writes, she preaches, speaks, and she is a teacher who inspires people of faith to transform their lives and their actions in response to the climate and e ecological crisis. Jessica holds a PhD in theology from St. Paul University in Ottawa and serves in the United Church of Canada. And Jessica, welcome. We're just so glad to have you here on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm really glad to be here. So good. And so timely because not only, of course, are we in the midst of climate emergency, but we are in the midst of Lent as well, which for Christians mm -hmm. is a time to really reflect on who we are and who we are in the universe and how we're called to live uh, in creation. But first of all, I just want to ask you, can you tell us and our listeners what what is an eco-theologian? <laughs> I get that question a lot. So <laughs> that's a great question to start with. Well, eco-theology is a form of theology that um, explores our tradition and and all the aspects of our tradition in light of and in response to the ecological crisis. Right. So eco-theology is in many different religions, but I'm a Christian eco-theologian. And so what I and others in my field do is specifically, it's about how do we take seriously the ecological crisis and then how do we respond? How do we examine and critique our faith and what resources can our faith tradition offer? in light of the ecological crisis. And it's actually been around for over 50 years. Some people find, think it's new, but it's actually not. It's been around for quite a lot, since the early 60s that we've been doing this work. Oh, interesting. interesting. Not me. I'm not that old. But <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Although I'm sure it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. So, and so how would you describe, you know, what you actually do? And maybe you could give us a little bit of insight into how sure. you came to be in this place. Sure. Well, my, my specific work is in the area of ethics, Christian ethics. Okay. And, and I focus on how do we change our behavior? There, we have to make big changes to our actions, both individually, socially, and politically, uh, to change the world because humans are, are destroying it in a nutshell. And so how out of, as people of faith, can we respond? And I came to that question when I first became a mom 20 years ago, and I've been an environmentalist since I was a teenager. And my own sort of behavior change was just kind of fair to middling, you know, just like most of us average Canadians. Sure. 
And I, and I started asking myself that question. I mean, somehow it got sparked with the birth of my son. Um, that question, like, how do I do more? What, what needs to change inside of me and inside of others to make us take the radical, make the radical changes that we have to? And for some reason, that led me down this path of exploring it in light of faith. Um, and, and what I've learned there is that, what I've learned is that, that we need something. Uh, and I realize I'm speaking to an audience that is not just people of faith, but it's like, what is that deep thing inside of us that can help us to shift in ways we didn't think were possible? Uh, and that's my passion, and that's my vocation um, as an eco-theologian and as a minister, is to help people tap into that and move forward and be encouraged and challenged to uh, to take climate action. So for you, were you a person of faith beforehand, but you just hadn't connected the two? Or did this do something to you as a, to become a more faithful or to become a faithful person? Um, I've, I've always been a person of faith. That took, you know, that took a meandering path. I was raised in the Catholic Church. Okay. Then in my 20s, I was sort of a spiritual but not religious, earth-based, spiritual type of person. I've always felt the sense the presence of the holy in the natural world. So... And then actually, it's, it's a bit ironic, but as I went into graduate school to explore this, so I was already in theology, that really actually returned me to my Christian roots. I oh. found within Christianity a deep tradition that had gotten buried for a long time of an earth-based way of experiencing um, God and Jesus and Christ in the world. And that really was transformative for me. And then, in fact, it was in writing my dissertation, so years into my uh, graduate school, that I discovered that this praxis, this this praxis in response to eco-crisis, is actually, for Christians, a form of discipleship, a form of how we live out our faith. And that, for me, was completely transformative intellectually, professionally, and also personally. Wow. Mm-hmm. It was a real like conversion experience right. for me to that. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Why it's so I'm now amazing. an minister and doing this work. Yeah. So did that lead that conversion experience that leads you to ordination to to exploring ministry in its more formal ways? It did eventually. Um, I you know we all take our own paths, and eventually I found myself in the United Church of Canada. Um, and once I was there, the path of ordination opened up because before that I was I was a practicing Catholic and it wasn't available to me as a woman. Right. And so it just sort of I wasn't quite sure what God was doing. It took a while to figure <laughs> it out that God wanted me to sort of bring these two pieces together. Um, I already had the the intellectual training as a, as an eco theologian, but also to help walk with people. My training as a minister allows me to preach. Uh, to, to talk about this as being a, a gospel call, that God calls us to this deeper action and response to the world, um, to the cries of the world, both people and planet, and also uh, that I can walk past, that I can help people as they're struggling with this and as they're suffering, sit and listen and offer that, that pastoral presence that comes out of my formation. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into the whole the whole gaping maw that is climate anxiety and climate grief. For those of mm-hmm. you who are just joining us, this is the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT FM. I'm the temp here, Christine Smaller, and I am here with Jessica Hetherington, who is an eco theologian. 
Jessica, do you want to talk about that, about what, you know, we're starting to see it in the mainstream media, talk about eco-anxiety, eco-grief. Those of us who have children or those of us who have any contact with young people, this is no surprise. The despair, Mm -hmm. the anxiety, Mm -hmm. the, you know, it's the depression, the guilt, Mm -hmm. even sometimes. It's completely Mm -hmm. overwhelming. And it's something that we need to, I think, understand about younger generations, that that is a reality related to the climate emergency. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, absolutely, you're right. This eco-anxiety, climate anxiety is really pervasive, and especially in, in youth, but also in uh, those of us who are, can no longer call ourselves youth. Sure. And it's, a, it's actually a completely normal response. Uh, to the climate crisis and to the eco-crisis more broadly because the world is in chaos. And one of the ways we're affected is in our mental health um, and in our fears about what's to come. So a couple of things that have been important for me to recognize when I see this is that often we don't take time to lament. So again, I'm speaking, you know, as a minister and as an eco-theologian, that need to lament what we've lost the need to lament the structures of injustice that have have fostered this and led to the where we're at. And we need to acknowledge and lament that sense of hopelessness and that sense of of worry and and helplessness, right? Um, And so when we're able to do that, we can start to unlock the grief and the fear, let it out. And then with that comes action. Like one of the things that helps us move through this kind of fear and this kind of anxiety is taking action. And because there's an empowerment that comes and, and a way to channel our energy and, and our fear and our, and our hope in through action. And so it's finding ways to do that and to create space for people to talk um, and, and be heard and not for it to be poo-pooed or to be seen as like, well, look at all the things that are being done. Don't worry. No, no, there's right. lots to worry about right. and to name that and honor that. Right. Oh, I love how you put that. And that reminds me of, um, you know, Walter Brueggemann talks about how we have to have, we have to face reality um, and then, you know, deeply lament um, before we can go on to any type of hopeful action. So mm-hmm. just so just preceding the lament, like, what is it? What's going on? Why are people refusing to accept the climate emergency? And, and mm. you know, how that is really, you know, it's a, a worldwide gaslighting campaign. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, mm-hmm. any, any thoughts on that? And maybe in particularly from a, a religious perspective, because we know, we Christians know that Christians are a big part of the problem here, right? Absolutely. Yes. There's a few things going on. One, one that's going on more broadly is a sense of, of denial, and we are in a, a culture of rampant consumerism that has taught us that our, our sense of, of wealth, worth, excuse me, and our sense of identity is in what we consume and how, what we right, buy and, and, right. and all of that. And that has actually come, factors into our sense of worldview and who we are. And where Christianity has been culpable has been setting up this otherworldly worldview that we're separate from and and superior to the rest of the natural world and that we have the right to dominate it. That's right. It's in Scripture that that's written. And the way that that has been interpreted has led to it's the foundation of our industrial consumer world that we're in. 
there are other interpretations and Christians like myself and others are working on, on building those up. But that has been quite pervasive and has a non-religious component as well. And so there's a few things we have to do to respond to that. One of them is we have to start to recognize that we're actually not separate from nature, right. that we are actually part of nature. Science has shows us that we are actually literally related to everything on the planet um, and through the universe, that everything that came from the Big Bang exists now today. So, um, and recognizing our place in the ecosystems and the life systems of the planet. Uh, and so there's a really, that's so critical. It's a key part of my work because then we can see ourselves as part of something larger than ourselves and we can find value and meaning in that. And then also start to be able to see the way that the planet is suffering is not just out there. Um, and it's not just objects that are hurting. It's whole other, it's life itself that it's hurting and right. help us to connect into that and build relationships out of that. So, and I think that that can really be helpful for in the climate anxiety we talked about in, in, in um, challenging the denial and the apathy. We've also, we're also in a world that teaches us that, that well, in Christianity, it's sort of like we're focused on oh, what happens to us after we die, right? Right. But, um, but that sense of, of um, really about our ability to act now and to act in hope now is really important. Right, right. So I can see how helpful all of that is. So we are in the midst of Lent. We're heading toward mm -hmm. the, the second Sunday in Lent. Lent's a time when uh, Christians uh, really reflect on our own behavior and our own relationships around us. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, often this, the creation story in Genesis is read um, mm -hmm. in Lent too and you know you've just referred to that in terms of this idea that we're superior to and that we have control over um, that we are given by God the the permission and encouragement to exploit uh, anything that we find um, mm -hmm. so can you talk to us about this idea of dominion over which is the word that's often used in translation that God gave humans dominion over mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. you know many of us uh, understand that to be uh, stewardship, which maybe mm -hmm. is still, uh, you know, superior, inferior kind of relationship, but is very different than an exploitative one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's different ways of interpreting it, and there's different levels of, I mean, there's different theologies, and there's different ways of working within it. So um, uh, so sometimes it's, it's wise demeaning, it's caring demeaning, it's very much the stewardship language um, and for some Christians and other traditions, that that really suits. And then um, for some, like myself, it does it, it doesn't allow us to get at the deeper relationships and reality of who we are in relationship to the rest of life on the planet. It's only one. There's actually, and Christine, I know you know this, but for our audience, there are actually two creation That's stories right. <laughs> in the Bible, and it's funny how much this one that we're talking about, which is about humans being created and, and, and we've been given everything, every good thing to eat and we've been given dominion. And then, but there's the earlier creation story, which is that God created the world and God saw that it was good. And so part of it is where do we put our focus? 
Right. And the, you know, and, and, and for Christians, we often know that, oh, and God saw that was good. So it, it, we, we sometimes lose the profound meaning of it because it's so familiar to us. Right. But we are not treating the planet as if it's God's good creation. And so how do we need to change our behavior to live into the truth that God created everything and God made it good and God called it good? So, so you know, there's different ways to go at this. I'm, I'm, of the, I'm of the position that I don't think the Dominion language is redeemable anymore. Right. Just like there's other aspects of the Bible around slavery and uh, oppression of women that we have determined is not true. I, I'm of that position. Um, but there are those who say it's about how we relate to the rest of the planet. And either way, it's about really radical, different ways of talking about fossil fuels, talking about uh, use of water, talking about pollution, talking about toxic waste. So the other thing to just say that's interesting is even though there can be different theological perspectives, on the ground, when I see different Christian organizations doing excellent work to respond, and we can have really different theologies, but we're doing amazing work on the ground of responding. And so it's important to hold that that tension or that dynamic balance of right. how is it actually being lived out in the world. Right, and I guess the respect for a multiplicity of understanding Mm-hmm. Both the scripture and the, you know, the call from God. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I want to take you back a bit to what we were talking before. Mm-hmm. So can you share with us, what does it look like when you are working with people who are experiencing climate anxiety and grief? I find that, so I haven't worked as much with younger people. And that's because so far my work has largely been with congregations. And as you and I both know, there's not a whole lot of younger people in the church. That's very true. <laughs> and, the, and the answer to that is not, let's get more young people in the church. It's, uh, it's asking, where are the young people and how do we build community with them? Well, and um, also, I think it's, sorry to interrupt, but also I think it's that that's why the churches, you know, as ministers, we have a particular responsibility because absolutely. we do have this captive audience, this demographic that yeah. might not be hearing these things. Now, I'm not talking about all of them but that might not be hearing these things from a different perspective. So I think that we actually have a particular call to talk to our people about ways yeah. of looking at, at the climate crisis and being open-minded and really being taking yeah. a prayerful stance, even when it's difficult to yeah. believe. <laughs> yes, and I've been, uh, and so when I'm talking, I'm finding that there's two pieces that, that the folks I'm speaking with find really like wow they hadn't thought about that and one is the fact that we're part of this we're part of nature that we're part of this entire earth community and how incredible evolution is and how it's formed and evolved and and finding ourselves within that so that's interesting to me that when i'm talking with um people who are who are my age and older and are like i hadn't thought of it that way so there's like this this fascinating education that needs to happen around reorienting ourselves within the scheme of things, as eco-theologian Sally McFaig calls it. How do we reorient ourselves inside the Earth community? So that's a big piece that people are responding to. Great. The other piece is when I talk about it as discipleship. 
And again, that's the word we use in our Christian tradition and other traditions have other words for this piece of how do we live out our faith in our actions in response to the call of the holy? And the bottom line is, uh, and this is where my work lies, is that unless we're living it out, it's not discipleship. We're not actually can call ourselves followers of Jesus if we're not living it out in our in changes in our behavior. And we see that in the gospel in terms of the issues that Jesus was dealing with in his time and place. And so, and in our time and place, the climate crisis is huge. It's the crisis of all crises. And so when I talk about it that way, it, it's interesting how empowered people can begin, challenged, yes, but also most importantly, empowered. Right. Because we, <clears throat> we, we know then that we can lean on something larger than ourselves to help us move, that it isn't just up to, it's up to us to act, but it isn't just up to us, because as people of faith, we know, we feel that we are being empowered and encouraged and supported by something larger than ourselves, both within the community and by God. And that piece, people go, oh, wow. So it's, it's interesting that these are the pieces that seem to be helping folks with the climate anxiety feel that there's some hope and that they can respond out of that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is the Radical Reverend Show here on the CIUT, CIUT uh, 89.5 FM. My name is Christine Smaller, and my guest today is the Reverend Dr. Jessica Hetherington. Now, Jessica, I know you say you don't talk, you don't work with a lot of youth, but do you have some ideas about how people could talk to younger people, especially children, about the climate emergency? Yes, and I mean, I have several children of my own. There you so go. I have lived this also <laughs> in my own. My kids range from six to twenty, so right. I've, I've been dealing on on different levels. Yeah. And, and one of the pieces I've learned is how much they already know. Well, yeah. Can we just stop there because this yeah. before we go on, because this is what we're hearing a lot about. You know, people who object to talking to their kids about racism and other things that are going on, homophobia, transphobia, all these sorts of things, and that is, you know, one of the big excuses that you know white middle mm -hmm. class and above parents are saying is that my kids don't know about this and I don't want them to know about it. Right. Right. Well, you know, my our kids teach us a whole lot at dinner time. Let me tell you. <laughs> so they know, like they know a lot, they know. right? They do, and and they and I I mean that quite literally. Like the way they speak about, like you say, some of the other issues as well as ecology. Um, you know, like you know, the issue. For example, I'm just going to go off tangent a little bit, but the issue sure. of pronouns. Right. It is not an issue for them. That's right. <laughs> like it's just that's their pronouns use it nor is it damaging <laughs> nor is it destroying nor is it, damaging. it just is what it is so so they know a lot already and of course they're so media savvy and so what's important is to talk about it to help them understand it age appropriately okay uh so so because they are often being exposed to more than what is age appropriate just because of social media so how do you help them to not feel like all of a sudden the world's going to end Right. Uh, but also the really key part, and this goes for adults, but especially for youth, is that if we, and, and especially climate anxiety, if we just stay in the shock and the horror, we will burn out, we will be stuck in despair, and we will, and the risk is also denial and apathy. We have to fall in love with the world because when we, we the, where we put our energy is on what we love. And so getting kids out into, again, forgive me for the dichotomy, but out into nature. Right. 
which doesn't have to be any further than your backyard, but also getting out into the forest and onto the lakes and whatnot, you know, out where there's less, um, less human impact. And help them to feel, experience the awe and the wonder of the natural world is so important, critical. Uh, David Louv, I believe his name is, has a book about called Nature Deficit Disorder, or it's called Child Lost in the Woods or something. And it's about nature deficit disorder. It's just a term, it's not a diagnosis, but it's that notion of when we lose contact with the natural world, it's a lot easier to abuse it. So we need to get our kids out. Literally, we need to get out, out and, and, and exploring um, non-human nature. And yeah. that piece becomes the foundation. It becomes the furnace. It becomes the piece that can, can help us find hope, can help us find respite, and then help us realize why this, this work is so important to do. I can't stress it enough that that piece is critical, especially for children and youth. So, and as we know, there are so many children and youth that don't have access to yeah. nature. Um, That's so, right. so what you're saying is that it's really important for communities, governments, schools, everything, mm-hmm. churches, faith communities, to be working in their communities to, you know, help those kids experience different ways of being in nature. Absolutely. And I'm glad you've mentioned that because, you know, my family, we go camping every year. Well, we're white and middle class. Right. And so it's easy and it's something we, my husband and I both grew up with. So it's important that we recognize the, the, um, the, the lack of access, the different experiences folks have. And, and, I mean, that's a part of that systemic nature of all of this is um, issues of racism and class. But absolutely uh, find different ways. And, and, yeah, it can't just be individual. It needs to be done in the schools. It needs to be supported by government on all levels to, um, to get us out there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's so important. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. how are your kids? <laughs> well, they're great. <laughs> they're feeling they're feeling. I'm just thinking, you know, I've got a – so I have a, my youngest is 21, yeah. And, um, you know, she goes through periods of just deep, deep despair yeah. over it and anger that, you know, anger that, you know, of course is directed at me, but, you know, rightly mm-hmm. so the, you know, the other mm-hmm. generations that, you know, we can point to the boomers and everyone else, but it's yeah. a generational uh, guilt, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that's another piece around it is they need to see us acting. We need to yeah. take responsibility, uh, you know, uh, individually but also for our generation and the generations came before we have left them with a mess so we have to take responsibility for that and we they have to see us acting or else it's really hypocritical so um you know we in our family we are going more plant-based in our more plant-based meals on the table and we have conversations about why excuse me and we have conversations about how much carbon footprint um ground beef you know beef requires to to be on our table and things like that and and versus tofu and so we have those conversations and so i think it's really important that whatever we're able to do the kids need to see us acting and then try to encourage them within that one of my kids has decided to be pescatarian so they just want to eat fish and and plant-based foods right so um you know and and supporting that and affirming that and encouraging that so but not cooking all the meals i hope no, they don't really want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we can encourage it, encourage them to cook their own meals. Yeah. 
Yeah, these are so important. And, you know, I think it is all of those, all of us who know young people, we just, mm-hmm. you know, we see the we see the face of climate anxiety in them. And that yeah. makes us want to do something. So I love how you're, you're really talking about how important it is that we align, you know, what we say with what we do, that we get out there and that if we say we believe something, then we're doing something. I think that, you know, reducing hypocrisy is always helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and they always see right helpful. through us. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's so good to talk to you. We're going to take a bit of a musical break right now. And when okay. we come back, we're going to talk about some maybe bigger issues. Not that there's anything more important than a child's understanding of the eco-crisis, but we're going to talk to Jessica again about some some things about the wider world and, and the impact of of uh of climate crisis so we'll see you in a couple of minutes Take off the crabs in the bucket. No time to get down, cause I'm moving up. No time to get down. 
Well, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Christine. I'm the temp here. Uh, until next week, and my guest is Jessica Hetherington, an eco-theologian and ordained minister who does really exciting and interesting work uh, in terms of trying to help people address climate crisis. So, Jessica, welcome back. Thank you. So I have sort of a big question for you. Uh, I, I want to know, why is spirituality, and you know, we could spend, you and I could spend many, many shows talking about the difference between spirituality and religion, but we won't get into that here. But mm -hmm. why is spirituality and religion in particular an essential element of working toward climate justice? Like, how, mm. like how does it fit in, and why would that fight to change things be be less than if it wasn't part of it? Well, we need all hands on deck. <clears throat> right. We need all voices at the table for climate action. And so, and some people like myself are, are motivated and convicted out of our faith perspective, out of our spirituality. It's a responsibility and it's a need and an urge to respond out of our faith, out of, out of our belief in something bigger than ourselves. And so if we were to not have them at the table, we're missing, we're missing a, a, a voice. Right. Uh, and also what we bring to the table is a sense of the common good, the sense of a sense of responsibility, um, at its best, a sense of self-sacrifice for the other, for the common good, for the good of the planet. So we bring a sense also of, of that values matter, that how we live out our lives matters beyond just our own personal selves or our family, uh, it, that there's a bigger picture that we're um, exploring. And so even when folks are in different traditions or in no tradition, we can still come together around talking about what do we value most? What is most important to us in our core? And we can encourage and invite those kind of conversations to happen. And also, we have a voice then going back, like you mentioned earlier, to our congregations, to our people, who may not listen to a politician or may not listen to um, the, the activists, but will listen to us. Right. Because we're speaking from that same faith perspective that they hold or a similar one. And connecting it with, you know, scriptural yeah. authority and, you know, theological imperatives. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also just curious about you about this sort of, I don't know what to call it, you know, for lack of a better word, like the spirituality, you, you talked about it earlier, the spirituality of being connected to the earth. So mm -hmm. is it helpful for people without, you know, a specific religious affiliation or someone who maybe doesn't think of themselves as being spiritual to you know, engage with that idea that there is something that's non-material in terms of our relationship with one another in the world, especially with the, you know, with the, the natural world. Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, I can't suggest what others should do or think or believe, but uh, certainly I have experienced and I have read lots of folks who are outside of religious traditions who talk about the deep sense of meaning and connection they get when they are in relationship with aspects of the natural world. It could be an animal, it could be a bird, it could be a, a place, you know, their favorite spot on the river or the feeling of the air and the warmth and the sunshine in the springtime, et cetera. 
that sense of there being a, a way of feeling connected and part of something. And um, so whether you call that spirituality or whether you call that religion, whether you call what you experience God or, or the universe or just that sense of connectedness, that is there um, as an invitation for people to connect to. Lots of studies have shown that uh, stress levels go down, anxiety levels go down, depression lessens, symptoms lessen when one is out on hikes, out in nature. So there is something that happens in the human body and in the human spirit when we are connected and when we sense, feel that sense of connection. So I, de I definitely think it's something people can nurture and cultivate regardless of what they choose to call it. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be an obligation with it. It's simply an invitation to experience something outside of ourselves. Yeah. Which I think we all desperately long for. We do. feel like it isn't just us. We <laughs> do. It's just us. My goodness, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a congregant, I say this for, with permission, um, well, she gave me permission to tell the story, um, that she came and asked me, you know, what is forest bathing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, my response, you know, good Christian woman who, you know, very comfortable with prayer and that kind of thing. And I said, well, I don't know a lot about it, but, you know, let's find out. And then we found out about, you know, wild church and people who are, you know, people with a Christian uh, perspective and people without who are going out into the forest. I know that's not what forest bathing is was initially, but going out into the forest and just, you know, immersing themselves in, mm -hmm. in it in a way that they open up to a feeling mm -hmm. and emotion and affect. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And uh, less people worry. That is firmly within the Christian uh, tradition right. as well as within others. Uh, some see it as sort of, quote, pagan, as though right. that it's separate from right. what we're used to or as something foreign to. And, and it's been buried for a long time. But, you know, our mystics have talked about that sense of connection. And um, and it can very much be part of the Christ tradition for one who who for whom that's their that's their um, framework for understanding. For sure. Faith. And also, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to tap on anything Christian too hard because you'll find something pagan behind it. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but there's definitely, uh, you know, especially the women mystics. I think about their poetry yeah. and their experience of, of well, it's also the important to me. Yeah, and it's also important to me to name it because often people come to me and say, "Oh, what you're talking about is indigenous spirituality," and I right. am not indigenous, and I am very cautious to avoid appropriating a tradition that is not Absolutely. my own for lots of obvious and good reasons. But it's also to say we don't necessarily have to go outside our own tradition right. to find this sense of connection. And the best interfaith or intercultural conversations we can be having, especially because we really need to be, um, you know, Indigenous leaders have been caretaking, taking care of the land for a very long time, way better than, than those of us who are settlers. And we do need to have them leading in this. And so rather than trying to appropriate say, oh, you all are all wise and we're just going to glom onto you, the best kind of interfaith or intercultural conversations we can be having is to say, okay, and here's what I've learned in my tradition. Right. And where is the commonality and where are there just differences? And, and having that yeah. respect, like with any other religious tradition, okay, that's how you see 
what I call discipleship. Okay, you know, and having those conversations. So it's just important to me to name that as well. Yeah, and I think that that sort of adds, it does add, you know, an important layer that we need to confront, you know, because everything we're doing is on stolen land. Mm -hmm. Like everything that we're doing is on Mm -hmm. stolen land. So what does that mean in terms of even the land that we go out and connect with? We need to spend time acknowledging about the history of that, Absolutely. the violence and the yes. the oppression that is associated with that. Yeah, it's quite complex. Yeah. Well, then mm-hmm. let me let me just ask you then too: is you know how how does poverty and racism intersect with climate emergency? They in, intersect everywhere, right? Uh, what 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 is probably familiar to many of our listeners is that the um, people in the world who contribute the least to the climate crisis, the least fossil fuel emissions, are those who are suffering the worst consequences. So people in the global south, and we're seeing that, like, for example, with the flooding that happened and, and, um, and, and more happening in the global south. And also in the global north, we're seeing communities, people of color, poor communities where there's toxic waste sites, are, are, are more likely to be placed in poor and, and communities that are predominantly people of color. Um, toxic waste site dumps, uh, you know, industrial areas. This is what happened in Africville way right. back when in Nova Scotia. And so, um, and, and, and health, the health consequences to people, the, the rates of cancer and respiratory diseases, et cetera, are worse amongst um, more vulnerable communities. So it's playing in all over the place. And so that's a really important piece that has to be recognized when we are um, seeking to seeking effective climate action. Right. What does environmental justice look like? What how do we how do we um, talk about these conversations? For example, sometimes we'll hear folks talk about population and the need to reduce the population. Well, you know, one North American is using up the resources of like eight or nine Bangladeshi right. uh, citizens. So we have to be really careful about how we're talking about the issues um, when we're, we're, and of course here in Canada, you know, clean water and reserves, it's, it's a debacle yeah. that we, we choose not to make sure that there is clean water and reserves and the condition of reserves themselves. So we're seeing this all over the place. It's, it's right there. It's, it's very evident. Just have to look. Absolutely. Friends, for those of you who are just joining us, this is the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And Jessica Hetherington and I are having a conversation about faith and climate crisis. And we're just talking about eco-racism. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is where we really need to help folk, you know, raise some consciousness in terms of, you know, we last Lent, we, we worked through some some materials and found in the United States that, you know, virtually all, you know, toxic industry and particularly dumps are uh, near, mm-hmm. near communities of color. And, you know, working through it, it was interesting because, you know, the initial reaction was, oh, what a coincidence. Isn't that a strange coincidence? Um, oh. So to find out, so like is, is part of our discipleship to learn more, like to delve deeply Absolutely. and not just accept that it's a coincidence, God calling us to really immerse ourselves, find out that it's not mm-hmm. a coincidence at all. 
and no. that then you look in the Canadian landscape and it's exactly the same. It's just not a coincidence that most Indigenous mm-hmm. communities are located near mm-hmm. um, places of, of, you know, toxin. Can't, you know, mm-hmm. the, the years, years of boiled water notifications and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's so important. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of, I just want to speak how Christianity, you know, I think that Christianity has ways, makes people feel good enough sometimes. You know, we come mm-hmm. to church on Sunday and we might say a prayer confession or two and have a cup of tea. And, you know, we feel sort of, you know, cleansed and ready to get back into whatever it is that we do. Um, but you can just talk for a few minutes about how it's actively contributed to climate emergency. Now, I think we really need to talk about fundamental Christians and their views on the earth, some of them, uh, mm-hmm. being almost disposable. Right. You want to comment on that? Right. Well, uh, I think, yeah. So I think what I've seen is most helpful is when people within their own tradition speak to the folks within their own tradition. Right. So, so um, in, you know, fundamentalists are a kind of a, a, a stronger version of Pentecostal or evangelical, if I have that correct, forgive me uh, to any listeners who know more than I do on that. But where I've seen it be helpful is when folks who are card-carrying evangelicals or within those traditions are able to speak about the importance of climate, importance of creation, have come up with interpretations of the scriptures that allow them, for example, to speak to that, to be effective. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist who's also an evangelical Christian, and she has a book out there called Saving Us, which talks about how conversations one-on-one with folks can help. And one of the things she does say is, if someone absolutely is not open at all to listening, you know, take your energy elsewhere. Right. Um, But it's, it's more like, I wouldn't be the one to speak to fundamentalists because my theology is just so radically different. But those who are already doing that work, and there's lots out there doing that, uh, who, who share a really different theology from me, but who recognize that this is, this is their call to good stewardship, they're, they're called to wise dominion, whatever, can have those conversations. I think where, like, that's actually quite a small stripe of Christianity. And I think we have to really pay attention to how our complacency uh, and our pr- and those of us who hold privilege within the Christian traditions, regardless of denomination, have have allowed our tradition to become soft, become non-challenging. You know, we just want to hear God. We just want to hear sermons on Sundays that make us feel good. We don't want to be challenged. Um, we kind of ignore the fact that to be Christian is actually meant to make us really uncomfortable and make us fight against the status quo and work toward love, compassion, justice, and mercy everywhere. And so what does that look like today? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, and even if, even if one doesn't, I mean, I believe that the, the pieces I've talked about, the reorienting ourselves in the earth community, I think is absolutely essential to building a different worldview. And, uh, and the piece about discipleship, I think, is essential. But even if you don't have those two things, to simply, to simply listen to what the Gospels tell us um, is that we're supposed to be out there changing the world. Right. And if we're not... For the better, by the way, for the better. Yeah, for the better, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. Thank you for that. Things I might assume or say in my head. But if we're not, what are we doing? Yeah. And how can we call ourselves Christians? That's a big challenge, I realize. 
And and I know there's folks too, you know, my favorite people in, in my home church are the 90-year-old ladies with their canes who are there every single Sunday. They can't be out protesting. But they right. can be they can be praying, they can be writing letters, they can be talking to their grandkids and their great grandchildren. Right. There's still there's a role for every single one of us. Yeah, and some of them yeah, are out there protesting. The great grand- oh, grannies have been I pretty. Be careful what I say. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I know I what you mean. You know, not everyone's yeah. you know built or called to be you know out on the on the line in the protest. Yeah, or they have health issues. Yeah, but we're all responsible. Yeah, for for doing something, um, and 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 I I do want to say again, I don't know if you were going to ask this, Christine, so forgive me, but we've been talking a lot about individual change. Right. But we have to realize that individual action is not going to move the needle on the climate emergency. Right. You know that. Say more. Say more about that. So we have to see policy changes and we have to see wide scale changes in manufacturing in industry. And we need to keep oil in the ground. So that isn't going to happen with all the vegan meals and recycling and reducing our water usage. Right. There's a big greenwashing thing that's happening in society uh, by industry making us feel terribly guilty if we keep eating meat right. or we uh, throw out that, that, that jar, that food in the fridge that went bad, um, you know, or that jar that's just too dirty to put in the recycling bin. You know, we're made to feel really guilty that we're not doing more. And guilt and has a way of paralyzing us, doesn't it? Absolutely. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about was that there's there's different levels of action. There's political action, which includes protesting, includes writing letters, includes uh, you know talking to our MPs and our MPPs about what they're what they're doing and holding them holding them to account. There's you know there's disinvest disinvestment from major companies and pension funds and all that. There's a lot of work to be done there. There's social work, social actions to be taken, meaning in our schools and in our smaller communities in terms of, you know, education and, and making changes there. And then there's individual action like we've been talking about. And I think it's important to recognize the, 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 that this is a huge systemic problem and that change needs to happen on all those levels and understand the relationship among them. Right. So I think that, uh, the individual action is really important for our character formation and for and for starting to move the needle very slowly. Like if if everybody stopped eating red meat, there'd be. I realize it sounds um, extreme, but if everyone in the world stopped eating red meat, they wouldn't have reason to keep clear cutting the Amazon. Right. Like, so there is that piece, but but ultimately, laws need to happen that keep that from happening. There needs to be global sanctions when that kind of thing happens. We need to be pushing on higher levels. But the individual actions can help perform us, help us to feel empowered, help us to feel um, to, to, that we are able to do something, that we are able to act in hope. And then that can also then challenge us to do even more than we thought we, we, could, we could do. Right. Yeah. Then we might find, OK, I'm already doing these things. Well, maybe I will go join a protest downtown. Right. Even though I never thought I would do that in my whole life, you know. It, it can also encourage us to take more radical action that's needed. Right, to have the courage to do so. So yeah. that that begs the question then, mm-hmm. you know, is Jesus calling us to political action? <laughs> you want to hear my answer? Oh, I do. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question that Jesus was uh, political. I mean, it's, you know, it's complicated because religion and yeah. politics were conflated in some ways, but absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't mean partisan. 
It doesn't mean partisan. Not necessarily. It means political. <laughs> it means he was yeah. absolutely out there challenging the powers of the day. But I think some and, people and are self killed for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we don't need to, you know, he, he's a problematic model for self-care for sure. But, um, you know, we, we need to follow, follow Jesus when his, his courage and the way that he took on the powers that be. And, you know, I think the whole idea about, you know, partisan politics is that sometimes that's the only way that you can, you can go up against the powers that be. Absolutely. It can be a strategic way. Yeah. To, to make change and and um, and and that all of these actions all of them can be a way of living out hope right in, so in all of this so do you want to talk to me about hope is there hope so so um, for those who aren't familiar hope is a big main category in Christianity <laughs> it and is. it actually isn't in and really any tradition and hope is is a profound feeling. It isn't optimism. It isn't utopia. It's this profound experience and action. Hope is actually lived out in action. Right. Um, that we work for the good because it is good. And for people of faith like myself and like you, we believe that something happens beyond our own actions, that it becomes a part of something larger and that there's hope in that. And transformation can happen. And we've witnessed transformation in, in the world, different movements, different progressive movements. We've seen transformation where we didn't expect them to happen. And so that's Absolutely. where I find hope. When we look at the stats for the climate emergency, it's not good. Yeah. Um, but if we let that stop us from acting, then, then, it's, then we're done for. So the hope, yes, there is absolutely hope because the hope is Greta Thunberg who's the work that she's doing. The hope is all the other youth who we don't, who aren't famous like her, who are doing the work. The hope is there in the 90-year-olds who are on the line. The hope is there in the person who never thought they'd give up meat and all of a sudden they're eating three meals of vegetarian meals a week. You know, the hope is there. It's in our action. uh, And it's in the joy and the love and the awe we can experience out in the natural world and in our relationships with one another. And as we move forward as as a human community, from all our different perspectives, from perspectives of faith or just being a part of being a citizen um absolutely there's a there's a lot of hope to be had it's lived out in action wonderful yeah and i think that's you know folks if you don't take anything else away from the show today hear what jessica is saying that you know we live as we say we live in hope which Mm -hmm. is not wishful thinking, but we live in hope always. And that's the thing about community, religious or otherwise, that we can lean on other people's hope when ours Mm -hmm. is waning for sure. Thank you for that. Now, what are you working on now? I understand you've got a a book or two books that you're working on? Well, yes. I Well, and it depends on the day. (laughs) Yes, I'm working on uh, two books. I'm working on a small e-book that I will published on my website on an, a short overview of eco-theology uh, just for folks who, you know, again, don't have my big library. Right. <laughs> want to just have an overview for understanding. And that's, great. that's directed to, to religious leaders, but also to just anyone who's interested. I'm working on a larger book uh, that spells out this idea of discipleship in response to the climate crisis as people of faith and talks about the dynamics and how we can help move that, move that forward. 
Uh, and so that that'll that's a longer project. I also have a weekly newsletter that comes out, right which is now, fantastic. Can I just well, say, thank it's you. amazing? Thank you. That's yep. how you and I connected. That's right. And I'm migrating it right now to Substack, uh, so it'll be on Substack in March. But uh, it can be found at my website, JessicaHetherington.ca, and that's where I just I I, I reflect uh, on the climate crisis, on the eco crisis. Um, where do we find hope? How do we respond as people of faith? How are certain issues theologically, how can we reflect on theologically or spiritually? Um, sometimes I offer scripture reflection there as well for those who are interested. Um, and but book it's also, reviews it's also, too. You're always talking about the books that you're reading too, yes, which is so trans- helpful. Books for transformation, thank you. And I give ideas for action we can take. And so I also, I have lots of subscribers who aren't religious, um, but who just find some of the resources helpful. So um, yeah, because like the books, I don't just talk about religious books. I talk about books about climate crisis and whatnot that are out there that I think are helpful for folks. Yeah, so and you have, and you, have a, doing. and you have a beautiful writing style. Thank it's you. Um, you know so clear. I you know I feel it's a very hopeful writing st- style. While you, you still you know are very clear about you know what's going on. So I always look forward to your, your newsletter. And, you know, you, you do all sorts of things. You lead workshops and you do, do public speaking. So, you know, folks who are listening, what, what, you know, what, what do you think that uh, tell them what you, you could do for them? If you're in a community of faith, I'm happy to come and preach or speak. I can preach in a Christian church or I can come and give a talk on a, to a group or I can um, come and talk at any other house of worship as well or do a public talk. I can also speak about this stuff sort of in a non-religious way, just how do we move forward as a community. And uh, and I offer workshops and I have not put them together yet, but I'm happy to offer lead Bible study or other sort of retreats. Um, I've been asked to create one for clergy who are overwhelmed. <laughs> what? I've never heard of any this. overwhelmed clergy. Yeah, no, like, who are we? I don't know. They're just mythic. So, yeah. yeah, so I, 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 you know, I'm a preacher, speaker, teacher, writer, so um, I'm available. And this is my full-time ministry. Right. I'm, not in a, I'm not in a pulpit right now, as we say in the church, um, because I want to devote my time and energy to this. So, Well, thank you so, so you come, much. Thank you You're so welcome. much. And what's the website again? JessicaHetherington.ca. There's no A in Hetherington. All so. right. Well, people get in touch <laughs> with Jessica, and thank you again. This has been the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Christine Smaller. I've been the temp. Tune in next week for Sherry DeNovo's first show after returning from her well-deserved sabbatical. Blessings to you all. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, ain't my trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, ain't my trouble so hard. Don't nobody.